Grace so sweet, it floods my soul, and hope eternal won't let go. My daddy race and Calvary, Jesus, Jesus rescued me. Jesus, Jesus rescued me. I will sing forever of your love. Come down with my hands to heaven, shout your praises loud. I was lost in darkness when you pulled me. Want to be close, close to your side, so heaven is real, and we will arise. Want to hear voices of angels above, singing as one. to your heart. 
Father, it is an amazing thing to contemplate your love. Your love that is unending. Your love that is expressed to us in so many ways. And we come today, Father, because of your love. We desire to offer praise and glory to you. And we desire to be more and more transformed in the image of who you are. Thank you for being present with us today. Be glorified in our worship. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. It's so great to see all of you here this morning. We particularly welcome those of you who may be here for Alumni Weekend and Family Weekend. Great, great to have you as a part of our worship time this morning. Take a few moments and share a word of greeting. Introduce yourself maybe to people you don't know. Right now, in places all over the world, there are children who feel forgotten and alone, without a home, without a friend, and without hope. But what if love could arrive through a simple gift? When you pack a shoebox with Operation Christmas Child, you're giving much more than a gift. You're helping a child find a friend, experience the love of Jesus Christ, and discover their own potential. In the hands of a child, this small gift has a big future. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. I find my every hope within 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that our times, our lives 
are in your hands. As we gather today, we do come to offer our praise to you. Words of thanksgiving, songs of thanksgiving. Because you are good and merciful. You have blessed us. You are at work in our lives and we want to express our gratitude. But we also hear you calling us to bring to you the burdens and the concerns of our hearts and minds, our lives, our world. And we do that because we trust you. We believe that you are who you say you are. That you hear us when we pray. This morning, Father, we, we pray that, that you will bless all who are grieving today. We think especially of Dave Butine, his family, the death of his father. We ask that you will comfort them with your peace and your presence. You'll give them strength in these coming days. Pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit's presence on them and all who grieve. We pray, Father, that you will keep in your care the suffering and the sick, all who are struggling with with life and the ways that it comes to us. We think especially of Louise Prinzel and Laura Habecker, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Ellis Bratzman, Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Fedor Sesepian and Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, for Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, others who may be on our minds today, and we pray for your healing grace upon each one. We pray, Father, for your restorative grace where our relationships are broken and torn apart. We pray, Father, for your grace to trust you about the future. As we stand at a crossroads, wondering the direction to take, wondering what the future holds, give us grace to trust you as you lead us. Father, as we just saw the video about Operation Christmas Child and we kick off this ministry once again this year, we pray that you will soften our hearts more and more for the needs of the world. And we pray that as we, as we gather these items in shoeboxes, that they will be blessed by your Spirit. And that our hearts will be moved to more and more compassion for your world. We pray, Father, for the churches around us. And today we pray for the Ashwood Wesleyan Church in, in uh, Loudonville, Lindenville, Lord. We pray for Pastor Karen Tucker. We pray, Father, for your grace upon her and on the church. May they know your peace and your strength and your help as they continue to serve you, serve one another, and serve their community. Father, we, we pray for our nation. We pray for those who are continuing to recover from the recent hurricanes here and for the recent earthquakes in Mexico. We pray for, especially for the people of Puerto Rico. We ask, Father, that you will bring assistance more and more, that all of the, the things that are blocking it would be removed. We pray that you will bring uh, rest- restoration where there is so much destruction. Father, we pray for those who are grieving, those who are injured, for the spirit of, of fear in so many hearts after the shooting earlier this week. 
It's hard for us to comprehend these kinds of things happening. We pray that your grace will be evident in the midst of this huge tragedy. May your church be a a visible presence of hope and of grace. Father, we pray for uh, the world beyond us. We pray for Alan and Sherry Shea as as they uh, continue their work in Liberia. We pray, Father, for just the nation of Liberia as they are preparing for the presidential elections and and the, the illnesses, the illness that Sherry's going through, and Alan's work with the radio program. We pray, Father, that you would give them strength, that you would bless them, but you'd bless the, the ministry of Elwa and the nation of Liberia, that we would see amazing things happen through your spirit. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who face uh, opposition, persecution in so many places of the world, and we think especially of the country of Iraq, as they are preparing for a vote of independence, there is increased threat of civil unrest and violence. We pray that you would bring peace to the country, and especially among Christ followers who suffer so much there. We pray that you would give them strength and give them your Holy Spirit's grace to be your people in difficult circumstances. Father, we pray for our nation that seems so enamored with war and we hear the threats of war. And we ask that through your spirit, you would bring peace. Father, this weekend, uh, many have gathered here in this community to come back to campus. Some are here visiting campus. And we pray, Father, that this weekend uh, has been a time of joy and reconnecting and that as we go out from this place and many go back to homes and, and, and various needs and burdens, we pray, Father, that you will bless each one. We pray for Houghton College. We pray for alumni and students, for faculty and staff and administrators. We thank you for the great ministry Houghton College has had for so many years. And we pray that you will continue to bless Houghton College in the years ahead. We believe you for great things. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa, where he found the ship going to Tarshish. Paying the fare, he went on board. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. 
Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. Finding him, the captain shouted, How can you sleep at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will save our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as a culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us? Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? I'm a Hebrew, Jonah said, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this, storm, this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. But the, storm, the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God, O Lord, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. O Lord, you have sent the storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm, the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. You threw me into the ocean depths. I sank down to the heart of the sea. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head, but you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. With songs of praise I will sacrifice to you, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto a beach. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim it the message that I have to tell them. Jonah went to Nineveh and entered the city. He cried, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the king heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he published a decree throughout Nineveh. No one, not even the animals, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals must wear sackcloth and pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all the violence. Who knows, God may yet change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw that they had done what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. He complained, Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's what, why I ran away. I knew you were merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You were eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Jonah went out to the east 
of the city, made a shelter to sit under, and waited to see what would happen to Nineveh. God caused a plant to grow and to cover Jonah's head from the sun. Jonah was very grateful. The next morning, God caused the worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God sent a scorching wind, and the sun beat upon Jonah until he grew faint and he wished to die. Death is better than living like this, he exclaimed. God asked him, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah answered, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, that you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. Shouldn't I feel sorry for this great city of more than 120,000 people in spiritual darkness not to remain, not, not to mention all the animals? This is the word of the Lord. And at this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church. Please stand as we sing together.
Please be seated. I doubt if there's a more famous prophet than Jonah. I mean, what other prophet has had a Veggie Tale movie made about them, right? I mean, that is, that's the epitome of we've made it. Veggie Tales, it does a movie about you. I mean, people, people know Jonah. They, lots of people who have very little biblical knowledge know Jonah. They know about Jonah and the whale, and, and they, they have heard of Jonah. They can make some kind of connection to Jonah. But I suspect that what they're thinking about Jonah might not be exactly what Scripture is telling us about Jonah. As we just read, Jonah is a, called by God to go to Nineveh and to preach to the people there, to preach against their wickedness. And instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west to Tarshish. He gets on the ship, and um, God says, not so fast, and he causes a storm to come up. And all the sailors are in chaos, and Jonah's just sleeping down below. I mean, he really isn't all that interested in doing what God wants him to do. He's sound asleep. And the captain comes to him and says, how can you sleep? We're about to die. Get up. Pray to your God. In the meantime, the soldiers say, we, somebody here has made this happen. Isn't it interesting how they think about that? I don't know that we would have thought about that. We would have thought, you know, about the, the uh, we would have called in a meteorologist to figure out why this was going on. They're calling saying, one of us has done something. And they cast lots and it ends up on Jonah. And they look at Jonah and said, okay, what's up? And he tells them the story of, of what's happened. And they say to him, okay, what do we need to do to you? To make this thing stop. And Jonah says, throw me in the sea because it's my fault. You have to give Jonah credit for saying, it's my fault. I was thinking about that recently when the hurricanes were hitting and things. And, and this has happened in the past as well. You, you always have people who want to say, well, that's because of what they're doing. You know, there have been some people in the church, church who have said this is because of the sin of America or something. I did hear someone say that this, the storm hit Florida because they voted for President Trump. So, I mean, you, you get it on both, going both ways, right? The bottom line is nobody is saying, you know what, maybe this is because of us. Maybe this is because of me. But Jonah does. Jonah says, this is my storm. I I caused it. It's my fault. Just throw me in the water. And, of course, they don't want to do that. They're hesitant to throw him in the water. But eventually, it's either Jonah or them. And so they throw him into the water. And I can't imagine what that's like. You know, I like swimming, but I don't really like swimming in a lake. I I like swimming in in a pool where I can see the bottom. You know, I know how far down it is. And in a lake, it always makes me nervous. Because I don't know how far down it is. And I'm never quite sure what that is that I feel on my leg when I'm down there swimming too, right? Um, and, and, you know, you... But here's Jonah in the water and he's sinking like a stone in the water. Holding his breath. Trying to survive. And the next thing you know, here comes this fish that swallows him. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, is that better or not? 
I mean, what would that have been like in the middle of a fish? Now, of course, this, this is the part of the story that creates a whole lot of controversy. And if you read scholars about it or other, some people that say, you know, that's impossible, that could ever have happened. And, you know, it seems to me the scripture's telling us this happened. But whatever your perspective may be, at least in the story, Jonah is in the fish. Three days, three nights in the fish. And while he's there, he must have thought to himself, I've got some time, I might as well write some poetry. Right? I mean, why not? I got some time. <laughs> write some poetry. Uh, he, he actually, you know, he, he prays to God. What he really does is he's quoting all, a whole bunch of different psalms. Almost everything Jonah says in this prayer come from various psalms. It made me think, just a side note, it made me think how important singing is in the church. And do you find yourself throughout the week singing songs that we sing on Sunday? Do you hear children singing the songs that we sing on Sunday or that they learn in Sunday school or children's church or junior church? I mean, it, it's a way in which the word of God and the truths of God get implanted into our minds. And the singing of those, it's important. It's good. And here's Jonah remembering the things he was taught, remembering the songs of his people. And he's singing the psalms down there. And he's singing the psalms of praise to God, thanking God that he rescued him from the waters. And somewhere in this story, he must have said, okay, God, I'll do what you want. Because after three days and three nights, the fish spits him out onto the land. That's a nice way of saying what the real word is. He vomited him onto the land. And that would have, and I can't imagine what that was like either, quite frankly. But as he digs himself out of all of that, God, the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, Okay, Jonah, let's try this a second time. I want you to go to Nineveh. And this time he goes. And he goes to Nineveh and he walks through this large city. It takes three days to get there. He walks through the city and he says, according to scripture, he just says one thing. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And the people listen to Jonah. And the people believe Jonah, they believe God's word, and they all repent. They all put on sackcloth and ashes. The king makes a decree that no one's allowed to eat. Everyone has to wear sackcloth and, and ashes. Even the animals they put sackcloth on. That would have been interesting to see. But he, they're serious about it. They are, they are ready to say, okay, God. And they also say, we're going to stop our violence. And we are going to repent. And they do. This has to be one of the greatest miracles in all of Scripture. 120,000 people open their hearts to God after three days of preaching. I mean, Jonah's going to win every church growth award possible that year. Right? The award for most converts, that would be Jonah. The award for the best attendance, that's Jonah. The highest percentage of increase, that's Jonah. Just stay up here, you're getting all the awards. I mean, this is the most miraculous thing that's ever happened. And Jonah has to be ecstatic, jumping up and down. Thank you, God, this is amazing. But instead, this is what we read in chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew you were going to do this, and that's why I didn't want to go. And the next thing he says is, you know what, God, just kill me now. Just get it over with. Just kill me now. I knew you were this kind of God. I knew that you were a God who forgives, a God who changes his mind, a God of compassion and mercy and slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you were a God who loves to forgive people, and I didn't want you to forgive these people. Lord, do you know how bad these people are? I mean, Jonah didn't even want them to be warned. I mean, in his mind, that's like, that's like telling the drug dealers you're going to raid the crack house the next day. Why would you do that? Why would you tell them? I don't want them to repent. I want them to get what they deserve. Now, our, our, typically, our response to Jonah is, He's kind of a bad guy, right? I mean, he's missing it. And there was a, well, the second movie, I think, that Disney made, animated movie, was Pinocchio. And they they diverge from the book a little bit because in the Pinocchio story, they have, of course, Pinocchio runs away from home and his father is searching for him. And in the process of that, he's out on the water and he gets swallowed by a whale and he's in the whale a few days until the whale spits him onto the land. That story sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the moral of that story is, of Pinocchio is, don't run away from things you're supposed to do. And most people, when they read the book of Jonah, think that's the moral of the story. Don't run away from things you're supposed to do. Now, that's not a bad moral. That's just not the point of the story of Jonah. You see, Jonah's not a bad guy. Jonah's just simply saying, God, aren't you a God of justice? Aren't you a God who holds people accountable? God, how many times have you commanded your people about justice? How many times have you talked about justice and injustice and how much you hate it and what you're going to do about people who continue to do it? Don't you care about justice? So you've got to understand, the people of, of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the nation of Assyria, are some of the most ruthless, cruel people in all of history. When you read the stories about Assyria and the people and their and how they treat their enemies, it is beyond brutal. I mean, it's heinous. And we know all about the way they treat people because they write it down. In the annals of their kings, they write down all the things that they do to the people they conquer and their enemies, and they're proud of it. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've done to these people. Look at how how vicious we can be. No one's going to mess with us. And they write it down. And I think until we sort of get a sense of of the of the the violent behavior of the Assyrians, it's hard for us to really understand what Jonah is wrestling with here. But you think about you think about the, the civil, the, the things that happened, the atrocities during the civil war in Sierra Leone a few years ago. And how horrific that was. And you multiply that times a hundred. You think about every, every dictator 
that you can imagine and all the cruel, inhumane things that they did to people who opposed them. And you multiply that a thousand times. You think about what it felt like to watch those planes fly into the Twin Towers and to see the towers collapse and then to see images of people in places of the world celebrating. You think about you think about the kinds of things that that sometimes happen to children. The kinds of things that that makes your stomach knot up. I mean, this is this is the, the kind of stuff that the Assyrians do, and Jonah knows it. And he says, God, where is your justice? How in the world can you possibly forgive these people? Lord, this is about truth. This is about justice. This, this is about doing the right thing. This is about holiness. The problem is, Jonah has a misunderstanding of holiness. Holiness is not following a a set of rules. Holiness is not some moral code. Holiness is being so filled with the Spirit that we look and act like God. And that's the thing that God is trying to do with Jonah. He's trying to get him to see through his eyes. And see, this story is not really about Jonah and the Ninevites. This is about Jonah and God. In chapter 1, verse 3 Jonah, it says, Jonah ran away, not from the Ninevites, but from the Lord. And in chapter 10, the sailors say, what have you done? Because Jonah had already told them, he was running away, not from the Ninevites, but from the Lord. This is about Jonah and God. And it's, and it's not even about how we feel about other people. It's about how we feel about how God feels about other people. How we feel about how God feels about other people. Jonah says, Lord, I knew you were a God of compassion and mercy. I knew you were a God who is patient and abounding in love. I knew that you were a God who loves to forgive people, but I don't want you to. Not these people. I mean, the conversions are great. It's just the wrong people. They don't deserve it. At the heart of of what I think Jonah is wrestling with is this great Hebrew word, chesed. It is is a word that is, it's it's such a nuanced word and so full of meaning, it's hard to pin it down to one, one translation. You'll often see it in Scripture as grace or mercy or loving kindness or loving faithfulness. I mean, it has a variety of definitions because it's such a, a big word. And you see it used numerous, numerous times, hundreds of times in the Scriptures. And it's used here. In chapter 2, verse 8, when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, he says, Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's Chesed. If you're going to worship false gods, if you're going to do these heinous things, if you're going to be like this, then you forfeit God's mercy. You forfeit God's grace. You don't get it. You give it up. But he also uses it in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, I knew you were a God of 
compassion and chesed. A God of mercy. And God's saying to Jonah, why are you angry about this? Don't I have the right to love these people? Someone was saying to me, it reminded them of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Where Jesus tells the parable about a man who goes out at six in the morning and hires all the men who are there to go work in his vineyard. He says, I'll pay you a denarius. They said, great, that's, that's a very generous wage. So they go, and a couple hours later, he goes back and he sees more people. He says, look, you go work, I'll pay you what, what you're, what it, uh, what's fair. I said, great. And a few hours later, again, what's fair? And a few hours later, he gets more, it's fair. Finally, five o'clock in the evening, he says, anybody else want to work? Yeah, we'll work. Okay, I'll pay you what's fair. And at the end of the day, at six o'clock, he lines them all up and says, okay, let's pay them. And he gives all of them a denarius. And the guys who worked an hour and three hours and five hours and seven hours, they're ecstatic. But the guys who worked 12 hours are irritated. What's up? You can't do that. You can't pay them the same thing as us. That's not fair. And the, the, work, and the, the master of the vineyard says, why isn't it fair? Why can't I be generous? It's mine, my money. Why don't you want me to be kind to other people? Was I unkind to you? No. Was I generous to you? Yes. So why can't I be generous to other people? Because I deserved it, and they didn't. A few years ago, someone asked me a question that has, has haunted me. And I think about it often, and I'm wrestling with it, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to figure it out. But the question was simply this. If God could find a legitimate way for every person in the world to receive eternal life, how would that make you feel? If God could find a legitimate way for every person in the world, every person in the world to receive eternal life, how would that make you feel? Now, I'm not saying that's what God does. I'm not saying that that, that's the case. I'm just simply, it's a hypothetical question. How would that make you feel? And I know that for myself, there's a part of me that my initial response is, that's not fair. When you break that answer down, when you break down the that's not fair answer, it begins to sound like people who don't live surrendered to Jesus have a better life than people who are surrendered to Jesus. It sounds like we're giving up everything, we're sacrificing, we're surrendering, we're, we're living our lives under the rule of God's kingdom, and they're not. How come they get rewarded and we, and just the same as us? And the reality is, we're living the dream if we're living the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. We're living in the freedom of Christ. We're living forgiven. We're not enslaved and in bondage to sin the way people who know nothing of Christ are. We're living in the joy of Christ. We're living in intimacy with our Creator. We're living lives of flourishing by, through Him who made us and redeemed us. And when we experience that and when we begin to understand that, then we have all the freedom in the world to say, we want everybody to get that. And it's no longer fair or not fair. It's now, how can I be a part of, 
of helping everybody in the world come to know Jesus and live in the flourishing of life with Jesus as I do. And I think sometimes the problem is we aren't really living in the the flourishing life with Jesus. And it's because we have a perspective of the kingdom that is rooted in rules instead of grace. We have a perspective of the kingdom that's rooted in who deserves it and who doesn't. Of wanting to figure out who's in and who's out. Instead of celebrating the gift of Jesus Christ in our lives and wanting that gift for everybody else. In Matthew 12, Jesus is out and the religious leaders come to him and say, hey, we want a miraculous sign from you to prove you're really who you say you are. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you any sign except for one. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the whale three days, the fish three days, three nights, then I'll be in the earth three days and three nights. But he goes on to say, but here's the problem. The people of Nineveh heard the message and they repented. I'm standing right here in front of you, the presence of God himself, and you reject me. And he says, it's going to be better for the people of Nineveh on that day than for you. And it's a warning to us about the heart of God and seeing God at work and seeing what he wants to do in our lives and in the lives of other people. There's a part of me that hates the fact that this story ends open-ended. You know, you get to the end of it and God just says, shouldn't I love all these people here? Shouldn't I love everybody who's, who's a part of this city? I created them. I made them. They're, they're special to me. Shouldn't I love them? And Jonah, we get no response from Jonah. I think Jonah probably continued to wrestle with this. And you and I will wrestle with this. It's not an easy thing. Loving people who, who we don't think deserve it is messy and complicated. Justice and grace, putting those things together is messy and complicated. And you will notice God is not saying, well, let's just ignore all the behavior of the Assyrians. We don't, I don't really care that they've been so heinous. No, He's, they say we're going to stop our violence. And that's what triggers it. We're going to repent, and that's what triggers it. But the grace of God is offered to them. That's why he goes and that's why he sends Jonah to preach to them. But until we recognize that we are here in this room today, that we live our lives in the, in the joy and the freedom of Christ every day, until we recognize that we do that only because of God's grace. We will find it continually difficult to embrace and celebrate the heart of God toward the world. Because we'll want to talk about what's fair instead of talking about how awesome God is. John Ortberg says that when he and his wife, not too long after they got married, they sold their Volkswagen Beetle and they bought their first really nice piece of furniture. 
it was a, it was a pink sofa. He said, when you pay that kind of money, it's, you, they call it mauve when you, when you pay that kind of money for something. And he said, uh, you know, the guy at the store told us how to take care of it. We brought it home. And uh, he, said, he said, my wife gathered the, the children. Laura was about four, Mallory about two and a half. Johnny was six months. She got them all together and said, okay, now, he said, here's the number one rule of the house. Thou shalt not sit on the sofa. Thou shalt not touch the mauve sofa. Thou shalt not eat on the mauve sofa. Thou shalt not go near the mauve sofa. Thou shalt not even think about the mauve sofa. You can eat, you can, of any other chair in the house, you are free to sit. <laughs> but, it, but the mauve sofa, if you touch it, if you eat on it, if you sit on it, if you go near it, you will surely die. <laughs> we all got the message, he said. And then the day came of the fall. He said, she came in one day and there was this stain on the mauve sofa. A red stain. A red jelly stain. And she called the guy at the furniture store and he told her how bad that was. And so she gathered the family and said to the children, I talked to the guy at the store and he said, that stain's going to be there for all eternity. She said, you know how long all eternity is? It's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who did this. <laughs> and they looked at each other and there was silence. And he said, and then finally, finally Mallory, the two and a half year old, cracked. He said, I knew she would. And she, <laughs> she said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura said, no, I didn't. And there was just Silence. And he said, he said, I knew that none of them was going to confess to putting the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa because they had never seen their mom this mad before. And he said, I knew that none of them were going to confess to putting that red stain on the mauve sofa because, because they, didn't, they knew that if they did, they would spend all of the rest of eternity in the timeout chair. He said, I knew that none of them were going to confess to putting that red stain on the mauve sofa because he said, in fact, I did it. <laughs> and I wasn't saying a word. <laughs> he said, here's the reality of it for all of us. Every one of us has stained the mauve sofa. All of us. And the truth is, we keep staining the mauve sofa. And the only recourse for any of us is the grace of God. And it's not because any of us deserve it. It's not because we're better than anybody else. It's because God is gracious and merciful. And we have come to a place where we have understood that and learned that. And, and we have accepted that. And it's changed our lives. And the call of the gospel is, don't we want that for everybody else? And the call of this prophecy of Jonah is to want to feel good. To want to feel happy. To celebrate. To embrace the way that God feels about everybody else. 
So as you think about that person, group of people, whomever, that you might find it difficult to really embrace and celebrate God's grace to them. This is the moment to ask God to soften our hearts, to change us, to help us to see them the way he does. Holy Father, we thank you for your mercy to us, for your grace in our lives. You know how we wrestle with this. We do. We pray that you will set us free to love. Acknowledging your love for us. We thank you for your grace that is completely undeserved. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing. Brothers, let us come together, walking in the Spirit. There's much to
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.